on Riley. I'll have your ear only a while. I left my dear home in Ireland. It was death, starvation, or exile. When I got to America, it was my duty to go. Enter the army and slog across Texas to join in the war against Mexico. And it was there in the pueblos and hillsides that I saw the mistake I had made. Part of a conquering army with the morals of a bayonet blade. And there amidst all these poor dying Catholics screaming children the burning stench of it all. Myself and two hundred Irishmen decided to rise to the call. From Dublin City to San Diego, we witnessed freedom denied. So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. Arched neath the green flag of St. Patrick, emblazoned with Erin Golbra. Bright with the harp and the shamrock, and the veritat of the Republica. Just fifty years after Wolf Tone, five thousand miles away, the Yanks called us a legion of strangers, and they can talk as they may. But from Dublin City to San Diego, we witnessed freedom denied, so we formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We fought them in five major battles. Churubusco was the last. Overwhelmed by the cannons from Boston, we fell after each mortar blast. Most of us died on that hillside in the service of the Mexican state. So far from our occupied homeland, we were heroes and victims of fate. From Dublin City to San Diego, we witnessed freedom denied. So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion and we fought on the Mexican side. From Dublin City, to San Diego, we witnessed freedom denied. So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side.
Howdy, folks. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb, and I am the Redneck, and you bet I've gone green, and I'm trying to convince you to do it, too. But I want to be clear. I'm the kind of fellow who believes in doing electoral politics without becoming an electoral fetishist. And for this show, I really want to uh, underscore that. In other words, so many people who want social change in this country, the United States, have this opinion that either, oh my God, elections are, are where we elect people who, who make decisions. That's where it's really at. And movement stuff, that's yeah, whatever. But really, elections are what really matters, right? So that's one category. The other category of people say, are you kidding? If elections could change anything, they'd make it illegal. Elections are bullshit. Don't even waste your time. Social movements are the only thing that has ever really made significant systemic transformational change. Here's the thing, y'all. They're both right and therefore they're both wrong. It is not the either or binary that so many people talk about. It has to be both and, which is to say, how do you do electoral politics with clarity that you're doing it for transformational change, knowing that the way our current culture works, it tries to denigrate, insult, and otherwise uh, disempower us. So trying to get elected is a challenge in and of itself. And then once you get elected, how the hell do you govern in a transformational way? And that's why I think this show is going to be fantastic. And it's really my pleasure to remind listeners and viewers, first of all, like, share, subscribe. We're getting larger, stronger, better organized uh, every week, and we want you to be part of this community. You also will recognize Jackrabbit, who typically is uh, comes on a little bit. You mostly hear his voice. Every now and then, he'll be inspired to come and join us. There is that handsome fella. Uh, Jackrabbit is actually going to be co-hosting this show because he has a particular political relationship with our guest. So I'm going to turn it over to Jackrabbit and let Jackrabbit introduce Kate. Thanks, David. Thank you so much. So uh, yeah, so I'm really excited about today's show. I, I really can't wait to talk to Kate. Um, you know, I originally found out about Barcelona and Camus through friends of mine who I knew through Occupy Wall Street. And um, it was really exciting to hear about because it sounded to me like from what I had heard, because they actually gave a presentation to other folks that, you know, we were part of our, our like community, our little Occupy Wall Street community. And they were talking about this, uh, this organization in Spain that had actually flown them to Barcelona to, to be there during these elections. And, um, you know, it, it just sounded really amazing. It was like this kind of like a, a the actual coming together of this idea of popular democracy, really engaging with the public, having the public be directly involved and, and engaged with uh, the, the actual governance of, of their communities. And, you know, these people were going into communities and speaking to people and, and followed through with that um, and with these leftist ideas and actually won. They were actually successful in, in Barcelona, um, I, I'm not exactly sure what the year is. I think it was 2015. Uh, you know, they actually elected a mayor who was running on this platform of like real democracy, really real engagement with the public uh, in a very real way. And you know, the person who got elected, her, her name was Ada Kalau, and she had been a, a housing activist who had been literally like you know arrested by the cops just days before she was 
Um, she won the election. I mean, it was it was just a very uh, it was like a story, you know, it was like a fantasy story that that leftists tell their children when they're going to bed, you know, it was that kind of thing, how cool it sounded, you know. And uh, and so we actually, you know, uh, were I, I became more involved and very excited about the whole concept. And we ended up having a, um, a, a meeting. It was like a there, I believe that there was I can't remember right now, but I believe it was like a, a, a kind of a, a national gathering that happened a couple of years later where we had, we brought people in to talk about, we called it fearless cities. It was like this movement to kind of try and get municipal, uh, try and get municipalism is what it was called municipalism. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but, uh, to get, have actually have it, have a foothold in the States. And, and so kind of like, you know, and, and I, I met, uh, Kate in person at this, at this gathering and stuff. So that was, and that was really great. So, um, so anyway, without, further ado that's kind of my my intro to why I, I know about this stuff and how excited I am about it and so I'm going to introduce Kate Shee Beard who uh, is an activist in Barcelona and Camus since uh, 2014. She is active in international municipalist uh, activism um, also known as Fearless Cities and she's on she was on the executive team of the organization from 2017 to 2021. So hi Kate welcome. Hi lovely to be here. It's great to have you. Really great to see you. So, Kate, do you want to um, just kind of introduce yourself and and let everybody know who you are and what you're what you're doing? Yeah. Well, um, I should say that um, Barcelona in Comun um, is no longer governing Barcelona since um, this May because we lost our third term attempt at um, at governing. So, um, I'm still in a kind of morning processing stage um but having participated in it was is one of the well most exciting things in my life as as you were saying earlier it was a complete dream come true it was the first time i'd ever participated any in any kind of electoral politics i had become very disillusioned um from electoral politics and I had the the luck that the first time I actually got involved, we won the election with a with the, one of the most radical platforms in in Europe. So, um, yeah, it was a complete adventure, and I'm still trying to, I guess, um, take the lessons from it and work out what they are. And I hope that our conversation today will help me to do that because sometimes, you know, uh, you need other people to talk it through, to you know, really tease out what the lessons can be for other other movements well you go you go so listen kate i, I will tell you I, I reckon our audience much of our audience will be if at all only very minimally or marginally familiar with either barcelona the election itself much less the the indignados movement and and sort of where it came from. So I'm going to invite you to sort of set the stage a little bit about what happened leading up to that election. What made unapologetic transformational thinkers think, oh, we could actually govern this city and we should try to govern this city, right? Like, I think that for a lot of our audience, for a major urban center like Barcelona, to think about people who share our values taking power is almost fantastical, right? So I'm gonna invite you to say, 
give us a little context before we get into the details of what happened. Set a little context for us. Sure. Um, okay, so I think it's worth noting that historically, uh, Barcelona has been a radical city. Uh, it's got a strong anarchist history, a Republican in the sense of non-monarchy, um, tradition, a workers, cooperative, a union tradition. So that's always been there and and it hasn't been lost. It's a, it's a city that's very kind of socially engaged. Um, and then what happened was after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, Spain went into economic collapse, austerity. There was a huge wave of evictions all over the country. And so new form social movements formed, particularly the um, platform for people affected by mortgages, which is where Ada Colau was an activist, which was a, a social movement that took direct action to stop evictions just by getting local people to stand in front of the doors of the apartment so that the police couldn't get in and evict people. Um, and then, of course, there was the our sister version of Occupy, which is why where that connection comes from, which was the Indignados movement in 2011, which was the occupation of public squares across Spain with people calling for uh, real democracy. Um, and that was also very tied in not just with the financial crisis, but also with a kind of corruption crisis in Spain, where you had this um, two party system where you had these career politicians who were in office for 20, 30 years, who were, you know, that financed by big business and were completely out of touch with ordinary people. Um, and so in Barcelona specifically, in those years between, I guess, 2010 and 2014, there was huge social movement activity and a lot of, I guess, um, victories from from the street particularly in stopping evictions and um in changing the kind of political discourse and around that time it was like a glass ceiling was reached right so you have so much such powerful social movements but they've they've reached a point where it was like there's only so much we can do from outside um of of the institutions and at that point, there was a debate about, well, if we're going to stand for election, should we do it at national level or local level? And in the end, um, the decision was made to stand at local level, partly because it was seen as more winnable and partly because of the, I guess, participatory potential that you have at that level. So different people from social movements and also from some of the small green and left parties in in Barcelona here there's a electoral system that's slightly more favorable to small parties than in the US though not particularly um came together and the idea was okay popular unity like let's get everyone um to come together build this new organization that was called Barcelona in Comun which means something like um Barcelona in common or together or something like that um, and stand for election and we had Ada Colau who was the spokeswoman for the housing movement who is a great communicator was very um, very well known because she'd gone to the Spanish Congress as a witness in a um, 
a kind of inquiry or a committee there was some sort of committee meeting about um about housing and she'd done this speech that went viral over the internet and well on tv and everyone knew who she was and so that combination of a kind of mass movement um from below and this very strong charismatic leadership um meant that from the organization being formed in 2014 and coming from nowhere we won the election in in 2015 we were the most voted for uh party and i guess just to summarize as well that apart from having a kind of social justice green um participatory kind of manifesto there was also a very strong part of it was like changing the way of doing politics not just the content of public policy so we had a code of ethics that well still have um that which is kind of dealing with more of like the um indignados kind of um corruption side of 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 the political crisis so that had term limits salary limits for elected officials um obviously um rules on donors no do donations from banks and big businesses and transparency and we can go into that in more detail but it was that combination of like let's change the way we're doing politics and let's change the political agenda uh yeah so kate can i can i ask you about that so one of the things i'm really very curious about here is uh you were talking about you made it sound as though who was making these decisions like early on when you were like, well, let's let's work at the local level. That's what I'm really intrigued by, right? I mean, like, was it was there an, a national discussion that was happening among uh, among activists among these this group that was that had grown over those years? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I was um, I I I wasn't involved until the public presentation of the of the of the movement, which was in summer of 2014. So in the months before that, from what I've been, you know, told, um, it was very much like discussions, informal discussions between people, mostly from the housing movement and um, the Indignados movement. And it was kind of like an informal, was that stage where you need like a, like a people who are gonna, you know, take the decisions even though there's no structure to actually make those decisions yet um i think it was pretty local although once barcelona um in barcelona we decided to do that then the similar platform sprang up from um activists in other cities who'd also been networked in you know to those previous movements so it was something that like spread pretty quickly um after we'd taken the decision in Barcelona. Mm. So it was kind of like a, a loose network, really. Yeah. 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 So, you know, to me, this is fascinating, Kate. I, I appreciate the clarity and candor you have around look, it was a loose network of people. We were getting shit done. Uh, we didn't really have a structure, but we knew we were at that point where we like some decisions had to get made, even though we didn't have a process or protocol to make decisions. And I want to point out to listeners, if you're on our podcast, if you're watching on the uh, the YouTube or the Rumble channel, just to remind folks, like, this is really how life happens, right? Like, in social, if you study any social movement history, you're going to find that there are 
people who were trying to make change. And when we look back at the American Revolution or the Civil Rights Movement or the, the Women's uh, Suffrage Movement or any movement, because we know how it, how it goes, we can tell it in a story and it's almost like a ballet, right? This happened and then this happened and even, and then there was some dispute here, but then this happened. But in reality, if you're living it on the ground, it actually is convoluted and it's messy and it's like, it's not clear exactly what to do and people are doing their best, but oh, they're so frustrating because they're humans and humans are gonna human. And So I, I just wanna uh, point out that to me, one of the lessons is we have to come together, collectivize to the best of our ability and actually with a theoretical orientation, but then put some shit into practice, try some things and then learn from that. Am I oversimplifying that? Because when you were telling that beginning story, I thought of, oh, you were opportunistic. You saw some things. There was a culture. You acted on it and then it kind of exploded. Yeah, I mean, you can't. You need sometimes people to make decisions and and test things out. And like, this is the other thing is. So this was like the hypothesis, right? And the first phase of opening up to, you know, beyond that initial kind of group that was driving it, was they set themselves uh, the challenge of collecting. I think it was thirty thousand signatures of support. Um, in the few months after, so they, they had the public presentation, which is where I kind of went along curious to see what it was all about. And, and then it was like, okay, because we recognize that we're not like, um, you know, legitimate to make this decision on behalf of, you know, the city, we're going to collect these signatures to, to see that there's enough of a critical mass of people who agree with us to like really take this forward. So yeah, you can play with those kind of mechanisms too, to, yeah, test your ideas. So the other uh, observation I had was, boy, you had a two-party system that most people found to be corrupt. You had uh, institutional rot. Like, Jack, I don't know about you, but boy, I I saw a lot of similarities uh, in the Barcelona uh, context. And what oh, yeah, I, was, oh, I recognize that. <laughs> Yeah, but also, but also, like you know, uh, you know what came out of it. You know, the Occupy movement was, you know, I mean that it was completely, it was totally spontaneous. The fact that it just kind of took fire around the country and around the world was just, I mean, that was a surprise to everybody in New York, that's for sure. I mean, definitely did not see any of that coming. So it's really interesting to hear a very similar kind of thing happening in Spain, where it sounds like it was really it sounds to me from what you described, it was kind of focused in Barcelona and then it kind of just exploded once people saw what was going on. They were like, I want to do that too. So, um, but what, what really, what David, I love what you were just saying. Cause like, uh, you know, and, and just like bring me back if I need to be brought back, but I have to say like one of the things that I'm really feeling so strongly right now, watching the uh, candidacy of, uh, Cornell West, and also the uh, just the, the conflict here in the United States right now, I'm seeing people who are focused in, so focused online. They're so focused, they're so obsessed with what's happening online, and they get really caught up and sucked into this ideal ideological discussion of of minutia. 
and and just like these tiny ideas of of what it what it means to be left and what it means to be a revolutionary and all this stuff and what i love about what we're talking about here is this idea just in this moment is this idea of just having to move forward what are we going to do what's the action that we're going to take not like how pure is our ideology or how solid is our understanding of theory but like regardless of what our differences are when it comes to these different ideas um, and policies, can we work together to move forward for an actual tangible goal? That's what I love about this. That's, that's for me, is really important. Um, yeah. and, and on this point, I would like to emphasize, because for brevity, I've kind of sl uh, shooted past it quite quickly, but like, it was not easy to get everyone on board, right? Because you had the Green Party, you had the Communists, you had Podemos, which was a new party at national level, you had the different activists, you had the neighborhood associations, and you had, you know, underlying that, like you say, all of these strategic and theoretical, you know, disagreements, and also all of the potential, you know, mistrust about people's agendas, and, you know, um, and that is not, like, it requires a lot of um, generosity, patience, tolerance of difference, and putting above all of that stuff like the finding the things that you share like what do we okay we don't agree about all of these 90 things but what are the 10 things we all agree on and like that whole process and having care with that process and not like when you're triggered you know by someone who's one of your allies um to like take a breath and have like get really build that culture of we called it confluence which is this idea of um everyone leaves their like hat at the door of like any p previous organization they belong to or you know their kind of labels and we come together as neighbors um i'm not saying that was necessarily the reality all the time but that was like the collective like myth that we were building um and we put the shared goals um in the center and building that culture was not immediate like the initial agreement i guess between all the parties was quite fragile but it's a culture that you can build through practice and through building that trust and it's super important kate i so much appreciate this and it reminds me of one of my mentors in fact a former guest on redneck gone green uh jerome scott uh who has a long history of uh uh, left organizing, uh, community organizing, and he was a, a leader in the Revolutionary Union movement uh, in the Detroit uh, factory workers uh, going, you know, doing wildcat strikes against both the racist UAW, white UAW leadership and, you know, uh, the auto uh, uh, bosses, right? Like, so, and one of the things that he, as a friend and a mentor and a colleague, always reminds me is, look, the importance of theory is so that you have an understanding of the world, not so that you can be a good movement trivial pursuit player, but so that you can have a grounding, right? And understanding that there's going to be disputes and debates always. And when the dispute or debate comes up, the important thing to do is number one, be principled, be willing to have like the like discover where the agreement and disagreement is right so be principled but also the end goal should always be 
how is the most unity that we can have at the end of this dispute, whether it's personal or political, and still be in integrity? And to me, that framing around it, I found myself all of a sudden getting actually less concerned about whether somebody agrees with me or not. And how can I be principled and find the confluence uh, that you're describing? And frankly, it's made me a much better organizer. And so I really think that it's not that we discount theory. It's not that we discount ideology. Actually, that's what drives and motivates us. But if we're trying to win, not just be right, then we have to have a level of not just political and emotional uh, maturity, but downright humility, right? Like, like if this was easy to do, we would have already done it. And so I'm going to circle back again to Jack's really astute, uh, like, uh, impression and excitement around y'all as unapologetic, like transformational revolutionaries were able to win an election in one of the major cities in, in, in Europe. That's a big fucking deal. And, you know, so to me, I'd love to know a little bit about more in detail, like, like how did, like, once you went from, okay, we're making some decisions without much structure, did the structure come through the electoral effort? Did you figure out the structure first, then get involved in the elections? I mean, I'm really interested in how can we replicate that in the U.S.? Yeah, so um, so there was like during the, the campaign, after the public kind of presentation, um, there was a proto structure that was basically um, designed around winning the election, right? So there was a communications part, there was um, like a neighborhood kind of part, and there was like the, um, the policy part that people are writing our, our plan for or coordinating the participation process for writing the, the manifesto. Um, and our main strategy was um, getting out into public space, uh, which I guess is not possible in all cities, but in Barcelona, there are public spaces, the weather's good. So we did a lot of like, you know, the, the photo, some of the photos looked like Occupy, you know, they were, just huge kind of circular public meetings in the squares and it was like an open mic system so um a couple of the representatives of barcelona and comune would go to the square they'd kind of briefly explain the project and then it would just be a listening exercise and people could grab the mic say what they you know what the problems were in the neighborhood what they wanted just express their general rage and frustration um and that way you got a lot of, you know, people walking by who maybe wouldn't have come to a political meeting if it wasn't on their doorstep. Um, and then there was the online side as well. Um, obviously, back in those days, it was 2015. The social media landscape was was different to, to how it was today. What our, one of our main social media guys, um, Tourette, always says that, you know, back in 2015, uh, the left still were like the Jedis of social media. We, we, we were still the ones who knew how to do it and, and the, who were organized and now like the tables have been turned. But um, so, and, and part of the, the, the important thing as well was our alliance with the existing Green Party because that's what gave us the, the right to stand for election to get on the ballot. 
and it also gave us time, you know, right to participate in the TV debates. So that combination of, um, and and of course the figure, the person Adekolau as a as a kind of spokesperson as well. So that combination of public space online and I guess mainstream media, and but mostly like the more I look back on it, it was just the right time. It was the right time, and it was um, the right people. And it, you know, there's so many things that um, you know it just wouldn't be possible even in Barcelona today. You know, to do it, we're just in a different moment. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I just I remember now that we're talking about it, you know, how excited I was when I saw it, it's fascinating to me because I feel like what you what you just described, what you did together was you were attacking both the direct public involvement by engaging people in neighborhoods. I mean, you were doing hyper local, like these hyper local listening sessions. But then what you're describing and I didn't know about was that you also had this kind of like this ballot access or like a, an institutional like involvement, engagement through the Green Party there. So it was like you were doing both of these things at the same time. They kind of came together in such a way, which I think is probably a big part of the secret sauce, right? Um, now, uh, and, and also speaks to what David opened up the show with, which was this idea that it doesn't, it can't just be one thing or another, it can't just be electoral, like electoral fetishism, or it needs to be like, you know, organizing on the ground, you know, with direct action or what have you, right? Um, it needs to be a combination of both. And that's what it sounds to me like, you know, was coming together um, in Barcelona and Spain uh, at, at larger. Now, I, I do want to real quickly, if we can just kind of like take a quick look at the timeline, because um, I wanted to get back to that because this what kind of what we're just talking about now, and, and I know we're going to get back to the, the nuts and bolts of it all, and I'm excited about that. But what we're talking about now is really kind of more around the, the origin story starts. It kind of comes together as this, uh, you know, uh, a, a movement. And then there's an, the Indignados where this uh, occupations are happening and it transforms into this amazing electoral victory that takes place around the country but there is more that goes on. So what happens after that? Because that was 2015. What continues to go on and also what makes Barcelona unique in that situation? Well, uh, what happens? Uh, there's the, 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 the political agenda in the, in the city changes and issues that were not even in the debate are now public policy. Um, particularly mass tourism, which had always been um, sold by the political and media and economic establishment as more tourism is better, um, even though local residents were getting more and more priced out of their housing and more and more frustrated about the negative externalities of tourism. So then we started to have all of these policies um, to clamp down on Airbnb, to change the urban planning so that new hotels couldn't open, to have a moratorium on new tourist department licenses. Uh, that was one issue, housing was another. So the issue of affordable housing was like one of our main flagship uh, policies. And we had, even though of course, city councils don't have a lot of the, um, the powers, right? Over housing policy, 
but we used every power we had to do things like finding banks that had uh, empty properties in the city unless they let them out at social rents. Uh, we had a, a new rule saying that 30% of all new housing had to be affordable. Uh, we did a big campaign for rent controls that finally, at the end of our second term, the national government um, passed a law about allowing cities to control rents. Um, and we started to build public housing also, which is another thing that had, public housing had only been sold off and sold off for decades. And we started a big program to build new public housing. Um, and we also had a big um, green space, green public space program. The most famous kind of part of that is called Superblocks, which is about turning streets, just kind of um, reducing considerably car vehicle access to streets and, and turning them into uh, pedestrianized green areas, which and you could see in the in the in the last um, the last election campaign, all of our opponents, they were all against, um, they were all supposedly very concerned about house prices and rent prices and affordable housing. They all wanted new green space. Maybe they weren't pro rent controls or, or pro the way we were doing it, but like the debate had changed. The debate was like, how can we make housing more affordable? How can we make more green space? How can we control the effects of tourism? And so like, we were playing like the, the the terms of debate had shifted completely, and for me, that's one of the the biggest achievements um, of of our time in office, I guess. So, so you I, go, I go love this idea of the super block because I had remembered uh, it, it, when it got translated here, it was called traffic calming. Uh, this idea that that uh, pedestrians were with municipal leadership. Uh, the 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 Barcelona government was literally saying, okay, like we should not be serving the automobile, right? Like we should be serving people in our cities, and therefore redesigning it so we're like, okay, there's a space for cars, but we shouldn't prioritize cars. That's at least how it got translated here, Kate. And to me, uh, what I loved about that was, oh wow, I'm watching y'all do policies that actually not just like far lefties can get excited about and say like, you make life better. Okay, here's more housing. Oh, and even getting more housing, we get parks where there used to be, uh, you know, nothing but these big, big, big thoroughfares. I mean, to me, that's what's so exciting. Like when people like us who share our values get into uh, municipal government, we can actually govern differently. Right. Like we, we can make people's lives different. We don't have to wait until we control the entire state apparatus. We, we can make what uh, we call the non-reformist reforms. Like you make reforms, you make people's lives better. Yes, we want to we want to go as far and deep as we can, but we're going to take the steps that we can. And here's the kick, uh, Kate, without ever being satisfied with just the reform. Right. Because if you do that, then you're you're you'll never ultimately address the the predatory class who have constructed this shitty society where, you know, people are hungry and uh, and not fed. So I'm wondering, uh, Jack, can you throw us up an image on a super block? Uh, uh, because I think that that 
I'd love for folks who are watching us on YouTube or Rumble to literally get a sense of what those look like. Because to me, um, I think that that is an amazing uh, 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 look to uh, at uh, at what it actually looks like and means. So while Jack uh, does that, my apologies for uh, catching you, Jack, as producer and co-host. It's unfair to you. So walk us through what we're looking at here, if you if you know any of these images. Uh, well, basically how it works is there's a large part of Barcelona is on a grid system, right? So if you um, basically cut off traffic, because you can have like delivery vehicles can go through at 10 kilometers an hour, right? At certain times of day, but basically it's pedestrianized. And if you cut off four of those, like a cross a crossroad, what do you create in the cross is like a new public square. Um, so, so, so check it out. Like for those of you, and if you're only on podcast, this is an encouragement for you to subscribe to YouTube or Rumble so you can see this amazing image. Uh, Kate, like show us like in that quadrant, like that's a park that wasn't there before. Yeah, because then you can, because there aren't cars going through it, you can plant um, trees and and put like, kids play areas and 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 in fact that's a the important an important part of the um the planning of of each super block was um participation with local residents and businesses about what they wanted to put in those new spaces because sometimes it was green sometimes it was benches sometimes it was like um chess boards there's what in in one they've got chess boards or, or ping pong or you know whatever it is that that um, the people who live around there want in that new space. And there's a a, a photo credit, uh, Jack. One more because I just think uh, 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 a photographer Anna Beltry uh, had a photograph that actually zooms in on what was once an actual auto thoroughfare, uh, and like so so because we. we We've looked at the big overview and you've like laid it out. But when you zoom in on this, uh, it's an amazing uh, uh, look. And I just, Jack, if you've got that handy, if you just scroll down on the screen, you'll see it. I think what, what you were saying before is really important about having tangible improvements in people's lives. And that's one of the things that makes, oh, that's one of the one in my neighborhood. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> how fun. Um, so yeah like things that people can see and touch and and be involved in and um because also they're the people who are gonna defend like the policy right when other people when you when you're not no longer in government um for example just yesterday uh, a court ruled because one of the things we have which i'm sure you're familiar with in the states is our policies being challenged in the courts by economic interests and yesterday there was a ruling saying that one of our uh, super blocks uh, was not legally supposedly um, done. And so it has to be dismantled and, and undone. Um, but just the reaction yesterday from the people who live there and from people in the city was like, no way, right? Um, so even if they come with the diggers to, to, to dig it up, I think they'll have the neighbors there tied to the trees <laughs> to stop them doing it, right? That's how you can make things sustainable. 
folks, you're listening to Redneck Gone Green, or you're watching it. Uh, but in any case, I am your host, David Cobb. I am the Redneck, and I have gone green, and I hope you will too. We're talking uh, to to Kate, who is a, a really a brilliant theorist, thinker, and doer of the municipalist strategy and her experiences in uh, Barcelona. Uh, Jack, you you have a question or a prompt. Sorry, David, you caught me. You caught me off guard. I was uh, I was just taking a look at this other really awesome image here that I just wanted to share. Well, this is, <laughs> this is just so gorgeous. It's like so lovely. And I, I mean, I, I don't know if I can, I, I feel like I should let you take over, David, because like my my head is, I'm just going into like lefty fantasy land. I'm, I'm going into like, you know, I want to, this is, I just want to go move to Barcelona and spread it everywhere in the world because it's just such a, a love, just the idea of like, I mean, come on, right? I mean, just the idea of like having people getting together and be like, you know what? we're just going to create our spaces that are centered around humans and not around commerce or, or cars. Just like, just, just even like a, just a little hint of that is just, Oh my goodness. What a lovely idea. I just can't help it. I'm just, I'm like, uh, make it, oh, it's and they're, they're good for commerce, like for local businesses, they get, they get more sales when people can walk past, when people enjoy walking down that street. Right. And you're a butcher on that street or you have a shoe shop. So although there was a lot of controversy about this is going to just people aren't going to shop here, quite the opposite. And Kate, it's interesting the folks at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance here in the States, there's a like the data is actually quite clear. Uh, traffic calming actually ends up being good and get this for local merchants. And one of the things that I think that we've got to really grapple with is to convince local business owners uh, who think that they're on the side of the Chamber of Commerce or, you know, sort of right wing uh, business economic interest, that it's actually not true that that, uh, you know, we it like 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 Main Street, not Wall Street. That's the the, the slogan that that I try to help people with. Uh, and it's on that tip that I want to go into the next question, and that is, how do you deal with requests from the public that seem on its face to be counter to your principles? How do you deal with like these merchants that you want on your side saying, stop, stop, stop? Like, how do you handle that tension? Well, in that particular case, um, I guess part of it is, is, is um, you know, listening to their concerns and, and, and trying to integrate them into that design process because yes like those businesses do need a delivery truck to come through in the morning every day like yeah okay maybe we can work with that um and then also this kind of um the first super block was the one that was in my neighborhood in Poblano and it was done through what they call tactical urbanism with very very cheap right just like a paint on the ground and just new kind of rules um and you make the mistakes, right? And then when you roll it out to the next neighborhood, you don't make the same mistakes because you've done it before. And you can say, look, actually in the end, the effect here was positive for local businesses and you can build that way. Um, but I think on, on the question more generally, um, I think one of the, I guess, um, for, for all of the, the radical, 
um, potential of local politics, which I do think there is a lot. There's also the very prosaic side, um, which is, you know, what do you do when the massive like residents in your city is not crying out for, um, I don't know, pedestrianization or uh, public housing, but they are saying that the most important issue in the city is that the streets aren't clean enough or that there's too much crime or things that like, I mean, maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe there's a media campaign that's saying that the city is crime ridden ever since there was a housing activist being the mayor. Um, maybe the city is a bit dirty because it's a very densely populated Mediterranean city where it doesn't rain so much. And so however much you, and lots of dogs. Uh, so however much you clean it, there's always gonna be some dirt, I don't know. But the point is, is that, um, you know, when, when you have uh, polls showing that people are worried about crime and cleaning, and when you have a relentless media campaign saying that the city is filthy and crime-ridden, uh, whatever the truth of that, um, politically, if you don't deal with it, you're not gonna win the next election. And that is, it can be pretty frustrating, right? Because you want to be talking about housing or you want to be talking about climate change, whatever. But, you know, you you have to increase your street cleaning budget and you have to, uh, you know, support your local police and, you know, all of that stuff. So, yeah, it's it's one of the one of the challenges because you can't run away from those things when they're, you know, people in the end. Uh, there are a lot of people who just want to walk out of their front door and you know see not see rubbish on the floor or trash whatever you call it <laughs> yeah and I, I feel like this kind of segues into a couple of different concerns that i had that i really wanted to check in with you about and learn from you about which is the bad guys and the and the bad guys coming in and doing everything they can to undermine this you know radical not radical it's a different way of approaching that centers people and centers people's needs, right? And is more democratic and putting people first. And you know, and <clears throat> but but we when I say the bad guys, I'm talking about these these institutions, these you know, legacy like institutions that are there, the financial industry, like you know, uh, the uh, I can you tell you what, who they are if you want. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. And and so. I, you know, I, I would like to know a couple things. One is, you know, how did you approach that? How were you dealing with those attacks? Because like you said, you need to deal with them. You can't, you need to deal with them politically. You can't just ignore them. You can't ignore what's coming from the the, the, requ the request from the public and the way that the, those may be strategically amplified by your political opponents. And, and, um, and another thing that I need to point out is that you know, how do you, how would you deal? Well, actually, let me just ask this. How would you deal with an attacks such as the reason that these bad things are happening are because of those lefty policies, those radical policies coming from this new government? How, what was that response that you had? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, uh, I can't continue without saying that our biggest baddie was um, the private water company in the city because one of our main policies was the remunicipalization of the water company, um, which had been privatized by the previous mayor under very dubious um, 
conditions and circumstances and was actually struck down by the courts um opening the potential of getting it back right under public control and this is um agbar it's called it's part of the french multinational um i think it's called swiss um but it's it's like a huge multinational of water, of private water companies and um they as soon as we won the election they set up all of these um like online mm, news sites that were basically just designed just to attack us uh, and just spewed out fake news the whole time. Um, and they set up fake local social movements as well to um, <laughs> to kind of do this, what, the, what do they call it, astroturfing mm -hmm. against us. They took us to court many, many times as well. Um, they took... They, they challenged in the courts, we wanted to bring in this new like um, citizen initiative so that citizens could propose like citywide votes on different issues. And they took that to court because we wanted to use it to have a vote on the water privatization. So it was, you know, um, they were behind almost every, every attack against us on any issue, not just water, they were behind it um, or had some involvement. And I think it's not just about, in those kind of situations, it's not even just about Barcelona, right? Or that particular policy. It's about setting an example. And it's about not, that because precedents are dangerous, right? So they just, they wanted to destroy us because they didn't want us to set any kind of pre pre precedent. Um, for me, the most dangerous attacks are those ones that play on legitimate concerns and fears that we were talking about the, the other ones are like the just the lies but the fact that it's like one of the things I mentioned before was about our our code of ethics right but by the time the third election came round I think in the first election this idea of like these politicians are not going to stay in power for 30 years they're not going to um, earn way more than the average wage they're going to be transparent, they're going to do things differently in like a non-corrupt way, was like a big electoral selling point for us. By year three, I don't think anyone believed anymore that we were obeying our own code of ethics. We were, but there'd been so many fake news stories saying that, you know, in saying that we weren't or implying corrupt practices or like just lies about our integrity to say that we were the same as everyone else that I think by term three, that had literally no political value, um, electorally anyway. Um, and, um, and the other thing is, um, the other complication is the issue of like different, like the US, Spain is, has at least three or four levels of government in any particular area, and the responsibilities are shared. So for, particularly on the issue of crime, for example, there was a rise in certain types of crime in Barcelona in a couple of years, over a couple of years of our, our being in office. But um, actually crime and, and policing are a responsibility primarily of the Catalan government, the regional government. But people don't know that. And if all of the media is attacking the mayor and not the president of Catalonia, and then you can't even do anything about it because you have your local city police just do like traffic controls. 
Um, I'm not offering uh, really the solutions to this. I'm just adding more and more uh, complexities to it. But it's not um, it's not easy to. Well, they won in the end because we lost the election, right? Uh, and I think largely so, because hmm. I, we're coming to the end uh, of our time together. This this hour has flown by. So I do, and I appreciate the clarity and the candor. Like, here's the great thing that happened. We were growing, but the like. I like to joke, the empire always strikes back, right? Like it, there has never been a social movement where the predatory class says, oh, look, y'all finally got it together and are working together. Here's the keys to the kingdom, right? Like they always double down. Like there are some folks who are confused and when they see it, oh yeah, I'll go along with it. But the true predatory class and not the ruling elite because they're not better than us, the predatory class, the the billionaire class, the 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 folks who have seized the public water supply and are literally commodifying a one of the basic human needs. These are bad actors, right? Like, let's be clear about this. These are our class enemies. So, I appreciate that you're adding complexity, but I do want to say, like, as you're thinking about it, Kate, what are you thinking about? Oh, you know, well. Like, what what could we do differently? How do we navigate this? Because they're gonna lie on us. They always lie on us. Like that, like, you know, like how do you think, oh, if as they look back, again, not that like, oh, if we had done that, we would have won, but what were some of the mistakes that you made that you think we could have at least corrected? Yeah, well, I think one of the things we did that I'm sure helped um to hold some of that back was um Ada invented this new type of public meeting called meetings with the the, the men.